This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 249, and we are recording on September 15th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And I am wearing a sweater, which is very exciting news. Yes. I'm wearing a hoodie. (gasps) Hooray! It's like 65 degrees. Yep. Yep. (sighs) <sighs> it's happening. I don't trust it. <laughs> no, I don't either. But you know what this means, Amanda? What? Is that it's chilly. soon to be chilly. Yes, it's chilly weather. <laughs> I knew it. I called it. Our uh, favorite time uh, of uh, the uh. year. Chilly time. <laughs> <laughs> and football is back. Look, any, I put this on Instagram on Sunday because I watched like a few of the opening games and was like, I don't even care about this. And I've boycotted the NFL for like three years. But normalcy like i just yeah. need it so i watched football all day and like took a nap and it was great the nfl is yep. still garbage I, listen fall <laughs> fall 2020 yes. we take what we can get amen <laughs> all right well if you haven't listened to the show before welcome if you mm-hmm. have also welcome as we set it up this is a reading recommendation show which means you can send in your requests for what you should read next what your book club should pick up Maybe something for a friend or a relative, or if you're traveling to somewhere, whatever. We'll do our best to find you a good next read. You can send those requests either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop it in the form that's on the website for the show notes. At the bottom of the show notes, there will be the form. And if you have a time-sensitive request, you're hoping to hear back by a certain date, please put time-sensitive, all caps, and the date you're hoping to hear back by, either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form. And we will do our best. If we're not going to get back to you on air, we might shoot you an email. So keep an eye out for those. All right. So let's see. We've got a bunch of feedback for the listener who came out to their strict Christian parents. Amy is recommending Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America by Jeff Chu, Unclobber by Colby Martin, and One Coin Found by Emmy Kegler. Uh, That last is the memoir of a devout queer Lutheran pastor. Mm. And Jessica is recommending Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians debate by Justin Lee, uh, who is a gay Christian man who was himself a very homophobic evangelical growing up. So lots of uh, lots of good stuff there. Thanks, y'all, mm. for those recommendations. Okay, I'm going to read our first question, and then we'll do a sponsor, and then we will start recommending. So our first question is from Erin, who is also an insider, and they get their questions fast-tracked. And Erin says, I'm trying to read books from all around the world, and I've found books from most areas. One area I'm having trouble with, though, is Eastern Europe. I don't want to get bogged down reading books from 100 or more years ago and would prefer more modern works. Do you have any suggestions? All right, let us do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. 
So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, Amanda. So Eastern Europe reading mm-hmm. recommendations, contemporary. What you got? Okay. I picked, you did not specify if you were doing fiction only. So I picked something nonfiction that I really liked. I picked Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova, which came out in 2017. And this is about Bulgaria, which is Eastern Europe. I Googled it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, is it? It's in the it's in the eastern part, so that counts, right? I could not, I, whatever. Like that whole geog, that area of like world geography makes me freeze. So I did Google it, and it does count. All right, so Kasabov is a journalist who grew up in Bulgaria in the seventies and eighties during the Cold War, and it was, uh, I mean, she would not have described it as frightening. Does not describe it as frightening as a child growing up there, but you know, frightening. Like Cold War before the Berlin Wall had fallen, and um, the area where she lived, which is called the Red Riviera on the Black Sea was considered to be an easier crossing point into the Western part of Europe than the Berlin Wall, than like trying to get through the Berlin Wall. So people were forever like smuggling goods and like themselves across the the Bulgarian border to try to get into the Western part of Europe and out from behind the um, Iron Curtain. And so the beach had uh, like an electrified fence. It was constantly guarded by soldiers and the fence pointed inward like to keep people in like to keep them from leaving uh which was kind of terrifying and so she leaves as a as a child her family leaves and she comes back as an adult to write this book about the history and culture of bulgaria which is a fascinating place because it shares borders with both greece and turkey so bulgaria has got so many different kinds of people coming through it 
like in an itinerant fashion, you know, refugees from Syria and Iraq coming to Turkey and then making their way into Bulgaria, and then also people coming down from Greece and all over Europe, most of them like on their way to other places, but also just like as a country, it has this really, I don't want to say not creepy, this like very ancient kind of like looming. I'm thinking of like the big trees in Lord of the Rings (laughs) that like, you know, all knowing kind of cultural history the thracians are were in bulgaria and there's still tons of archaeological sites like still standing uh, religious sites from the thracians and so kasabova like gets in a bunch of she like hitchhikes a bunch and just travels around bulgaria to some of these places where like a lot of um, pagan practices are still being done and uh, people who like have not let go of the cold war 20 years later and are still living as if you know the soviet union is in control of the country which in some ways it is but in some ways it's just really not uh, and just the people she meets are really really interesting and so this was published in 2017 so it is very contemporary as much as anything can be that's missing the last four years <laughs> of history but you know it's not america so whatever I love this so much. It's a country that I knew absolutely nothing about going in and a place that is really, you know, a a gateway between the East and the West before the Soviet Union and and still today uh, during this refugee crisis. So super fascinating. Loved it so much. So that's Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova. I had to double check Eastern Europe like four times also in the course of re- <laughs> yeah. getting ready for this question. The, and apparently there's some like disputes about what counts mm-hmm. as Central Europe and what counts as Eastern Europe, which is interesting. But anyway, the book I'm recommending is also nonfiction. It's a memoir. It's The Black Dog of Fate by Peter Balakian. And this is about Armenia. And um, I pulled this recommendation from uh, former contributor Aram's great post on essential Armenian literature, which I will leave in the show notes. And I feel like Armenia doesn't get talked about very Mm. much. And Armenia has a very intense history, including that it experienced, uh, Armenians experienced the first genocide of the 1900s, which is not a great thing to have happened to you. Um, But it's also still like it's, you know, denied um, and it doesn't really get talked about. I don't think it gets taught very often. The author, Peter Balakin, he is a first-generation Armenian-American who grew up in Jersey in, like, the 1950s and 60s and, like, you know, had this all-American childhood and, you know, was very close with his grandmother. But underneath all of this, like, seeming normalcy was the shadow of these horrific things that his family experienced, um, which was the Turkish government's killing of more than a million Armenians. And so it sort of goes uh, from his childhood to this sort this dawning realization that these things had happened and that no one is talking about it. Like, not his family, nobody wants to talk about it. And so, you know, he has to sort of do some fact finding and talking and try to understand like what happened and how it has continued to affect his family. And I know that like so technically, you know, the author is Armenian American and this is not exactly, you know, like it wasn't published first in Armenia, but I I feel like it still counts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the read harder challenge and other similar challenges, I feel like you get to decide what counts. So (laughs) I have decided that this counts. (laughs) Gavel. Oh, wait, I have a gavel. I know exactly. Here's my gavel. Um, because go. it, you know, it is. It's an important topic, and this is a really accessible and interesting and important memoir. I think. Uh, so yeah. Again, that's Black Dog of Fate by Peter Balakian. All right. Our next question is from Lee, who says, "My nine-year-old daughter does not like to read most fiction or nonfiction books at all. The only things she enjoys are graphic novels. She's also recently gotten into anime." 
Her favorites are Spirited Away, the movie and the graphic novels, and the Click series. She also enjoyed the first Sanity and Tallulah book. Any recs you have to keep this flame going would be appreciated. Okay. Relatable, right? Like, I've got two nine-year-olds. They both went through this, um, like, only reading comics and graphic novels phase and Dogman because every child in America is just (laughs) Dogman. How? Why? Why? How? And why? Anyway. It's fine. I like the Dogman books. I picked Delilah Dirk and the Turkish Lieutenant by Tony Cliff for you because my kids loved it when they were in this phase. And I think it's got a lot in common. Very adventure-y, like the ones that she's already liked and enjoyed. So this is like a lady alternate history, a little bit steampunk, kind of Indiana Jones feeling. So Delilah Dirk is, (laughs) she's described in the book as a lovable 'er ne'er-do-well, which is like she's a pirate. And also an Indiana Jonesy, Indiana Jones, arguably also a pirate. But yeah, so she's a, you know, treasure seeker, adventurer kind of person. And she travels, she's traveled all over the world. She's been to Japan and Indonesia and all, and all these places, America, well, America, the New World, whatever. Um, and she is now in Constantinople trying to steal an item from a very corrupt dude who is also a pirate, actually called a pirate in the book. And she gets caught and there's, you know, she escapes and all of the, and like in her grand escape, she picks up a sidekick whose name is Salim, who is the aforementioned Turkish, Turkish lieutenant. And he starts to tag along with her on all of these adventures. And that's like kind of just what she does. Like she gets, a, there's like steamship kind of stuff. Um, lots of very gore-free, you know, uh, low-level violence kind of fight scenes. And this just like really kick-butt woman taken kicking button taking names mostly the names of bad guys and has this hilarious i really enjoy um it's like the princess in black i really enjoy a like powerful girl main character with like a well-meaning dude sidekick because <laughs> that's not often you know what you get in adventure stories whether they're comics or movies or whatever and i think that that is kind of important to see this like very powerful female character with a secondary character who is the guy and who is like vulnerable and well-meaning and salim is he's just a little cinnamon roll he cries a lot like he's just great i love him so much uh yeah there are a lot of books in the series so she goes on plenty of indiana jonesy type adventures that's great so that's delilah dirk and the turkish lieutenant by tony cliff love delilah dirk (laughs) i because she loves anime and spirited away i picked little witch academia by yo yo shinari kaisuke sato and trigger and i listen I am obsessed. <laughs> this was like my pandemic discovery, and I fell down this mm. rabbit hole because Netflix recommended the anime show to me and highly recommend. And then I discovered that there were manga novels, and I was like, it's all coming together for me. This is the universe wants me to have this. It's really sweet and fun. It is, as you might guess from the title, about an academy for young witches. The main character, Akko, like grew up, you know, dreaming of getting admitted to this academy because she when she was a child, she saw this witch named Shiny Chariot perform and she was like, I'm going to be like Shiny Chariot. But she doesn't come from a magical family. And when she gets to, you know, she embarks on her like trip to go to the academy, she like already she even has trouble getting there. There are some like snobby witches who are mean to her. Um, And then, of course, she finds her like misfit band of friends and they have all kinds of adventures. And the thing I love about Akko is that she is not super talented at magic. Like, she really struggles to get even the basic things right. But her superpower is determination and perseverance. Like, she she's going to be a witch. This is what she's going to do. And whatever she has to do to do that, she's going to do it. 
And she's so positive and upbeat. And like, even when she's struggling, she just like she just never gives up. And I just love that you have a heroine here who's not just like perfectly gifted and like does all the things right. Like she's actually really has to try so hard to do the thing that she loves and she their setbacks and she gets upset and disappointed, but she keeps going. And it's there the adventures are so much fun. Her roommates are hilarious and lovely. And there's all kinds of magical creatures and it's just great. There's three volumes of the manga and a light novel. So yeah, you might have to read it aloud with her or she I don't know what her reading level is like for prose, um, but she might be able to get through it on her own. Really fun. And I also love that her arch nemesis is actually like a nice she's like stuffy, but she's she's like the nice Draco Malfoy of Magic School, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. So there's all kinds of great things about this series. Again, that's Little Witch Academia by Yo Yoshinari, Kaisuke Sato, and Trigger. All right, our next question is from Selena, who says, With the pandemic still going on, I haven't been able to see my girlfriend in ages, and honestly, I just need some reads to remind me of her, even if it does make me miss her even more. I'm not very versed in romance, so I have no idea where to start. I'm looking for women-loving women romances that are very sweet, without much angst or conflict, but with some steaminess. I'd particularly like for the love interest to be a shy-slash-sweet-slash-cinnamon-roll-type character. I love this question. (laughs) Amanda, what did you pick? I picked The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite because I feel like if you're not a romance reader, just diving into a Regency (laughs) is like a great way to go. Um, It is also very sweet and has a cinnamon roll heroine, in my opinion. So like I said, this takes place in Regency era. It might be Victorian. I don't... Whatever. In the past, it takes place in the past. There are ball gowns. You know what I'm (laughs) saying. And so the main character, one of them, her name is Lucy, and she is a brilliant... Mm, astronomer. I always get astronomy and astrology mixed up. She's a brilliant astronomer. The science one, not the horoscope one. And her father also was also uh, a brilliant astronomer. <laughs> and she was his assistant, right? So he, because he's the, he was a man and she was a woman, so she could not go out and become this on her own. So she worked as his assistant, helped him do the math, helped him in his discoveries, and he has recently died. And so she is trying to figure out what she wants to do with herself. They don't have a lot of money. She lives with her brother. They don't have a lot of money. He wants to, like, sell the telescope and marry her off and just kind of move it along. She is very opposed to this idea. So she gets a letter from the Countess of Moth, which is the greatest name ever, asking for help from her dad, who, you know, the Countess of Moth does not realize is dead yet, um, looking for someone to translate this French astronomy text that she has, um, that she's been sent from uh, this famous astronomer in France. So she needs help translating it. And uh, the Countess of Moth's husband was also a very famous scientist who has recently died. So Lucy's like, well, my dad is dead, but I'm going to do this because I need money. So she shows up at the Countess's house. The Countess's name is Catherine. She shows up at Catherine's house and is like, hi, Um, he's like super dead. Sorry for the miscommunication. But if you could let me do this, that would be aces. And Catherine agrees. And so they, they, you know, spend their time together um lucy moves in she starts translating this work they fall for each other and so there is there is conflict you can't really have like like romance novels kind of focus around you know around a conflict and then the people come together at the end that's how they work so there is conflict but a lot of it is external in this book like a lot of it comes from men who don't want lucy doing this job or whatever and their conflict i don't want to say it's like easily overcome but the conflict between the two of them is not relationship ending by any means and Catherine the countess is such a cinnamon roll and she is very very sweet and like unassuming I don't know that I would say that she's a shy person but 
she is a little bit self-deprecating, you know, like does not necessarily believe in her own value. As and and Lucy is very much there to like help her move past that to like kind of convince Catherine that the things that Catherine's good at are valuable in their own right. And, you know, you don't need society to tell you that the things that you are good at are valuable. You are valuable. And this is like the kind of way that the relationship works. It's very sweet. And it's very satisfying in a lot of like angry feminist ways. I love this book so much. So that's The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. The sequel is also fantastic. Just an FYI. I haven't read it yet. (laughs) It's so good. You have to read it, Amanda. I will. Okay. I picked Things Hoped For by Chensia C. Higgins, which is a novella that is part of a series I've never read, and it didn't matter. (laughs) It was great. And now I do kind of want to read the rest of the series, which is always a good sign. And this novella is, it's contemporary. It is also raunchy, kinky, and sweet all at the same time. Like, what a combo, y'all. What a combo. Jess Pride recommended this to me when I was poking around, and I'm like full of thank yous to Jess Pride. So the main characters, Trisha and Zenobia, are both living in Houston. And Trisha has just moved there. She is a massage therapist. She's, like, trying to restart her life. She grew up in a very, like, small sort of intolerant town in the South. And so she's moved to Houston because she's like, okay, I have to, like, get out of here so I can be who I want to be, which is bisexual. And, like, start to try to find love. But she's, you know, she hasn't really started this process yet. And Zenobia, Zeno is amazing. She is a rapper who has been, like, sort of, you know, getting some fame locally in Houston. And then a, like, very famous, like, Grammy-winning rapper drops her name in an interview. And she's, like, blowing up. And what I love about this is Zeno, she is the cinnamon roll. Like, how often do you get a female rapper cinnamon roll main character? Like, I mm. just love this. Um, and she's like, all right, I got my family. I like, I'm blown up. I'm getting my fame. I'm getting paid. All I need now is a girlfriend. Like, she actively wants to fall in love and have a relationship. And she and Trisha meet one night after a show and, like, sparks fly, things happen, et cetera, et cetera. And I love that this is, it is really light. Like, the conflict is pretty minimal and also believable. Like, Trisha is just really sort of, like, nervous about being in a relationship and falling in love, whereas Zeno is just like, I'm ready. I'm like, I'm here. I'm ready. So, you know, that's the thing that they have to navigate. There's lovely friends who are, like, rooting them on and have their backs. There's just, it's so, it's so lovely. And, like, definitely steamy. Like, you will get your steamy factor. So, super into these two. Such a great little fun novella. Again, that's Things Hoped For by Chensia C. Higgins. All right. Our next question is from Brooke, who said, I realized that reading picture books to my four-year-old is the best part of my day every day now, and I'm leaning in. I'm maxing out library checkouts and just using this time to read every book I ever wanted to her. I'd like to recommend that everyone, even non-parents, check out some picture books soon, as it's often a satisfying mood changer. Please recommend lovely picture books for us listeners. Okay, I... <laughs> I just... Sorry, I just saw the cover of this book on, like, the Goodreads tab that I have up. It's so good. I picked Grumpy Monkey by Suzanne Lang, and Max Lang is the illustrator i love this picture book so much it's about a chimpanzee named jim because of course it is and he is in a terrible mood like he's just in a bad mood he's got no reason 
He just is. And his friends don't get it. Like, it's such a nice day. Everything is great. How could you be in such a bad mood? And so they try to cheer him up. They try to convince him to, like, do a bunch of different things to improve his mood. Like, don't slouch. You know, try smiling. Like, all of this kind of ridiculous stuff. Things that make them happy, but that don't really change his mood at all. And so he gets more and more frustrated. He tries to take all this advice, but it's not working. He's still in this bad mood. And then he has, like, a big meltdown. And has to, like, kind of get over it. And so... I was this just the most relatable. <laughs> I give this to all of my friends with like toddlers because toddlers are just emotion tornadoes, you know, with no self-control yet. They have no brakes and no filter. They don't know what they're doing. And I think this is so valuable. And when you I picked this one because you said like recommendations even for non-parents. I think this is really valuable also for adults because the whole message is like you are allowed to feel your feelings. And if you're in a bad mood or you are in whatever mood, if you are in any kind of mood, that's fine. You are allowed to do that. And your only job is to figure out how to best work through it for yourself without hurting anyone around you. And that includes like taking on everyone else's advice as if it's your own and then having a giant meltdown and yelling at your friends. Like you don't do that. You do the other thing, which is feel your feelings and move through it. And that is a a lesson I think that like a lot of adults don't necessarily know or knew, but are not, you know, remembering, especially right now in like, you know, the year of our Lord 2020, the most stressful year in recorded history, where everybody is just like on edge and has no bandwidth and is just freaking out. Understandably, right? Feel your feelings. I love this book so much. It's so good for everyone. So that's The Grumpy Monkey by Suzanne Lang and Max Lang. I will be right back. I'm just going to go order like 16 copies of it. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. His face is just like, nope. (laughs) I love it so much. Extremely relatable. (laughs) Um, I picked The Proudest Blue by Ibtihaj Muhammad and SK Ali, illustrated by Hatem Ali. And I love this picture book so much. It's only in part because I am low-key obsessed with Ibtihaj Muhammad, who is an Olympic medalist fencer and also a social justice activist. She is amazing. Mm. She's a hijabi athlete, and she has just like been on the forefront of so many different things. And in this picture book, it's about two sisters. It's the first day of school, and it's also the older sister's first day of hijab. And Faiza, who is the younger sister, is like watching her sister move through her first day of school in hijab and like seeing people's reactions to it and like having feelings about that. And it's like a really beautifully triumphant sister story. And I think, first of all, the illustrations are gorgeous. Secondly, I think especially with younger kids and like right now when they're not getting to be out in the world, like meeting other people and experiencing things outside of their like family bubble, any like stories that we can have that remind them of like the wider world and like what other people are out there. Like, I don't know what your home life is like, but, you know, I think a lot of Americans, especially white Americans, have not experienced much around, you know, hijab acceptance along with lots of other things that we're not great at accepting. Uh, And this picture book is just so good and so perfect and a great way to sort of like think about that with a kid. And again, the illustrations are stunning. It's so pretty. So again, that's The Proudest Blue by Ibtihaj Muhammad, SK Ali, and Hatim Ali. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend. Okay, it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critics Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. All right. Question five is from Christine, who says, As we continue to shelter in place, my wanderlust is reaching peak levels, which is not aided by the end of a two-year relationship with a fellow travel lover. I'm feeling strongly about some sort of less cliche version of an eat-pray-love adventure to plan after quarantine as my 40th year approaches. I loved Nichols's No One Tells You This, and I would be interested in either a memoir or perhaps epic fiction with a female protagonist. Epic literary fiction set abroad that I've enjoyed include Shantaram, A Fine Balance, House at the Edge of the Night, Beyond the Sky, and The Earth, A Journey into Bhutan. Countries of interest include Italy, art history major here, but please no Cuscor Ferrante, or really anywhere. <laughs> mm. Ooh, that was like a lot of things. Okay, Amanda, what do you have? I think that if you want a less cliche version of Eat, Pray, Love, you have to read a, a, a different book by Elizabeth Gilbert because she's the one who wrote the less cliche version of her own book. And that is the signature of all things. So that's what I'm recommending to you. It is epic fiction with a female protagonist. It takes place in the very early 19th century, like 1800. The year 1800 is when the main character is born. Her name is Alma. Her father is a like brilliant scientist who's born in England and makes his money in the quinine trade in South America, and then eventually becomes the richest man in Philadelphia. And his daughter Alma, born in 1800, like I said, also a brilliant scientist who becomes a botanist in her own right, but also, you know, facing all of the uh, issues and obstacles that a woman in 1825 or whatever, who is a scientist would be facing. So she becomes a very like, uh, left brain, I think, kind of person, like very data driven, science she's an atheist she just like does not you know 
want not concerned with the spiritual spiritual things or anything and then she meets a man named ambrose who is an, a, the exact opposite of her like he's an artist he likes to draw pretty pretty flowers like very cerebral um they get married and he goes to Tahiti uh, to, you know, make artsy drawings of flowers, really. And he considers these these are like his discoveries, right? Uh, what's that? Like the Audubon of flowers is who he wants to be. And she he eventually goes missing. And so she decides she's going to go searching for him. And so Alma goes on this, what starts off as a, you know, quest to recover her family and becomes this kind of scientific, this life, really, of scientific exploration and discovery in different parts of the world. So she goes to Tahiti. She ends up in Amsterdam for a while. Um, She's in London and in Peru, and it's very travel lusty. And she's going for various and sundry reasons. Like sometimes she just wants to see the place. Sometimes she thinks that her husband is there. Sometimes it's, you know, for for scientific reasons or uh, professional reasons. And she becomes really, really obsessed with moss, which sounds kind of like do I have to read 500 pages about moss? You do. You do need to read 500 pages about moss because Elizabeth Gilbert makes it fascinating. And you're seeing, you know, I am I love watching people nerd out about the thing that they're into, even if the thing that they're into isn't anything I care about. And that's exactly what's happening here. Like Alma becomes so enamored with this one particular living thing, this one particular organism. And it's a contagious kind of love that that the reader definitely picks up. And because of that, you're like willing to hang with her on these month-long journeys across oceans to discover the next new thing. And her scientific journeys into moss lead her to these like very big Darwinian realizations about evolution and the state of humanity and all these kinds of things. It's just epic. Like Elizabeth Gilbert is taking what she did in her own life in the Eat, Pray, Love, like, you know, woman without man goes traveling and putting it in this huge lifelong epic kind of historical thing. And it's just really, really great. So that's The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. I picked a memoir, sort of essay collection. It's Travels with Myself and Another by Martha Gellhorn, who lived an epic life. (laughs) She was a novelist, a travel writer. She was one of the greatest war correspondents of the 20th century. Like, really fascinating, amazing person. Also had a relationship with Ernest Hemingway, kind of famously. And she... It's just so great. This is actually one I haven't read in full, but I read a lot of her other writings and I just like I always recommend her. And this is a collection of her travels, some with Ernest Hemingway, who she doesn't name, just another and some by herself, which I, I kind of that. love. She's what just like, flex. you know, this guy. Exactly. Like, I'm not going to name guy. him. <laughs> some, Who cares? Some dude. <laughs> some bro. Um, she's so great. And she goes all over the globe, right? Like, she goes to Moscow, and she goes to the Red Sea, and she goes to China, and she just goes everywhere and is, like, very smart and thoughtful about everywhere that she goes. So, yeah, hard, hard, like, recommend for any and all things Martha Gellhorn. But I think this collection in particular, this memoir, sort of fits exactly what you're looking for. Again, Travels with Myself and Another by Martha Gellhorn. All right. Our next question is from RV, who says, do you have any recommendations for fantasy novels that have older female protagonists, like in their 30s or 40s? Something like the Blackthorn and Grimm series by Juliette Marillier. Okay, I picked The Wolf of Oren Yarrow by K.S. Veloso, which is the first book in the Chronicles of the... Ooh, I don't think I can say that word without getting us dinged by Apple. Uh, Chronicles of the B-I-T-C-H Queen. I'm just going to spell it out. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like, okay, I don't remember exactly how old the protagonist is. I don't know that it's mentioned, but she is a queen, like an established queen. She has been married for several years, like maybe a decade or more, and has a child and is... 
um, you pick up pretty quickly, like, not young. This is not a young, newly to the throne kind of fantasy novel. So she's definitely older. And her name is Talion. She's the queen, obviously. And Orin Yarrow is her country. And it was when she took the throne, it was in the middle of a, a huge war that was like ripping the nation apart. And so she marries, in an arranged marriage, the son of her father's rival to bring unity to this nation, right? And so that's what happens. The war ends. She marries this dude. They have a kid. Uh, and then he abandons her um, and leaves, goes across the sea, is missing for years and years and years, and leaves her alone to kind of clean up this mess after this war and to keep peace. And that's what she has done for many years. And she has done it through force, mostly. She's brilliant. So like a lot of cunning. It's not a, so she's not, this is not like a soft character, right? Like she is, establishing dominance over rebellious tribes and rebellious generals uh, with her sword. She's, it's violent. She's like doing the damn thing. And then she gets a message out of nowhere one day, like years later, from her husband asking her to have a meeting with him across the sea. And it's supposed to be about reconciliation, not between the two of them personally, but between Orin Yarrow and some like warring countries where he has been taking refuge. And so she still loves him, <laughs> like weirdly, uh, even though when they met, like this was very much a political arrangement, but she had actual feelings for this man. When he left, it broke her heart. And so she gets on a boat to go meet him. And as the reader, you're kind of like, is she going to kill him or like kiss him? We don't really know what, <laughs> and I don't think she does either, um, except she does. And this is the reason why I'm recommending this book is because you're in her head. It's like, uh, you know, you're listening to her thoughts. She's the narrator. She's kind of a moron. Like you're, a lot of the decisions she makes, you're like, are you high? Why would you ever, what are you doing? You know, or she makes them out of emotion or she makes completely illogical decisions that make no sense to you. And then as you're going, this is a pretty hefty book, you know, it's like 500 pages. As you're going, you start to get the impression that she's keeping something from you. Like this is a narrator who is not telling you everything. And then by the end, you, when you figure out what, like all the threads come together, all of this decisions that she's made make sense. And you can see exactly how the author kind of wove them together. It's so well done. And this is a, like, this is a character who is grown with a capital G. Like she's not a child. She knows exactly what she's doing, even though she tricks everyone, including you, the voice in her head into thinking that she doesn't. And it's brilliant. So that's The Wolf of Orin Yarrow by K.S. Veloso. And I have to bump that one up on my TBR. I've had it on there for forever. It's very character driven. It reminded me a lot of, um, oh, what's that? Like the, oh, shoot. What's the, what is the lesbian fantasy that's like based kind of on Mongolia and Japan? Oh, yeah, that one. Yes, it's very much like that, like character driven. Right, right. Uh, with violence on the periphery. We'll remember yes. the name and put it in the show notes at yeah, some point. It's like right there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly. Tiger's Daughter, K. Arsenault Rivera. I did it. Thank you. Yes. It reminded me a lot of the Tiger's Daughter in that, like, you're in their brains and all this political machination that's happening around them kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I picked, it's not epic fantasy uh, or medieval fantasy. It's actually more contemporary, almost like, I guess it's technically urban. It takes place in San Francisco. Anyway, I think you're going to like it, though. It's Tea with the Black Dragon by R.A. McAvoy, which is like a favorite. I still have my really tattered copy. It was first published in 1983. I found it in a used bookstore when I was probably 13 or 14 and reread it a thousand times. And I don't know why. I honestly, I mean, it's 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 well written. The characters are great, but like, I honestly don't know what about it made it so excessively rereadable to me. But I think you'll love it because everybody in this book is grown. The main character, Martha McNamara, is I want to say like her late forties, early fifties. She is a musician. She's like her specialty is like Celtic harp or something, and she's very whimsical. Like she's extremely like hippie musician lady. 
And she has a grown daughter who has moved to San Francisco and is like some kind of like she's making lots of money. She's got some weird like finance job that Martha doesn't understand. And she's just sort of bemused by her grown daughter. And Elizabeth has been acting strange. She's been like calling at weird hours. She sent Martha a plane ticket and a reserved a room at like a fancy hotel for her to come visit. But now, you know, Martha's like there in San Francisco and Elizabeth is nowhere to be found. So she's like, where the heck is my daughter? And she meets this man named Malin Long, who also lives at the hotel. And he is also a distinguished, like, older gentleman. And she starts telling him about her predicament. And so he decides to help her find Elizabeth. And hijinks ensue. There is all kinds of magic that happens in ways that I was not expecting when I first started reading this. And I just love how, like, really, truly everyone is a grown-up having adventures in San Francisco plus magic and tea. Like, there's lots of tea talking here. That might be part of it. I can't remember if this book predates or formed my obsession with tea. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Causation or correlation. Yeah, exactly. It's there somewhere. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just it's extremely enjoyable. There are more books in this series. They're all on the shorter side. I wish I wish there were longer and I wish there was more than two. But here we are. Um, but I think Gilded so again, that is Tea with the Black Dragon by R.A. McAvoy. All right. Our last question is from E.V. who says, I recently finished A Little Life and I'm kind of at a loss for what to read next. I was especially moved by how well I felt the author followed the characters across their lives and the general theme of tracing prior events and their ramifications across time. Do you have recommendations of fiction or nonfiction books that similarly capture these themes? I'd prefer one where the across time is happening in more recent years, similar to A Little Life, rather than far back in history, although open to anything. Amanda, what did you pick? I picked The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, which takes place, well, it starts in the Nixon era, but most of it takes place in the modern day. And this is about six friends who meet in the 70s at a summer camp for very, for like artistic kids. And they dub themselves the Interestings in that way that only gifted, horrifyingly bad 16-year-olds can. You know what I mean? Which I, oh, I was, which I was one of these awful, obnoxious, just the worst kind of kids. So I feel like I can say that. Anyway, um, and so they, you know, have different, they're, they're gifted in different ways. Like some of them are musicians, some of them are artists, uh, visual artists, actors, all of these sorts of things. And they're, uh, you're following mostly Jules, who grows up to become a nurse. She does not find success in, I think she's an actor. She does not find success in um, her artistic thing that she was studying at summer camp. But two of her friends, specifically Ethan and Ash, who were part of the group, this group of interestings, become majorly successful. Ethan becomes a um, animator for like a big movie studio, which feels like kind of Pixar, I guess, but, like founds a studio that becomes kind of Pixar. And Ash, um, I don't remember, sculptor? I don't remember what her talent is in the book, but they get married. And so Jules is very middle class. You know, she works, I think she lives in New York. She has a fiance and like their life is very normal. But her best friends, who she's known since childhood, who she is just as talented as, you see what's happening, become wildly successful, multi, multi-millionaires. And she does not know what to do with her hands about that. Like, <laughs> waha, you know, because it's not that she didn't have talent herself. It just through, you know, the, the, the luck of the draw and circumstances and networks and those things that conspired together to make somebody really financially successful in the arts happened to her friends, but do not happen to her. So it's very much about like the intersection of the class and, and art and also about envy. Like, what do you do when someone who is just as good, who you are just as good as, right? 
makes it big in a way that you will never, that your life is never, ever, ever going to be like that, even though you are just as good at whatever the thing is. Like, what do you do with those feelings? I don't know. But you're with these people from childhood. Well, you know, there's 16 child, whatever, from adolescence to their adulthood. And it does that thing that a little life does where it goes back and forth across. Like you can see an event that happens in the summer camp that leads to XYZ conversation when they're in their 40s. You know, it's not nearly as sad as a little life, but like TBH, what is nothing? Zero things in the world (laughs) are as sad as a little life um, and does not come with all those trigger warnings. But it is doing that same sort of thing. Like this is a group of found family who become really, really tight knit and close in their youth and then are together through, you know, most of their lives. And even though they have these these issues with like envy or I don't even know if it's jealousy, uh, but they have these issues with like, why do you get that? And I don't get that kind of a thing. Um, they still, their relationships maintain in one form or another through all of these, you know, life events and things into their adulthood and well beyond. So I think it's a good comp. So that's The Interesting by Meg Wallitzer. I am recommending a memoir because as I was thinking about books that trace, you know, prior events and ramifications across time, but also like limited to the scope of, you know, more recent, The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Co. popped into my head as a really good comp. It also comes with many trigger warnings, suicidal thoughts and attempts, disordered eating, domestic violence, sexual assault and depression all figure in this in pretty intense ways. Um, But if you got through a little life, you will be perfectly fine. And this memoir is about the main, well, the main character, the author, (laughs) (laughs) Yoonji. She, when she was 15, her parents go to South Korea for work and leave her with her older brother in California where they have where Yunji was born. And she is like extremely sort of derailed by this. And her parents do this because they will make more money if they go back to South Korea and take this job that the father has been offered. But it does mean leaving their kids behind in a different country. And so it's not an easy decision, but they are like, well, this is how we get you a better life. And, you know, this 15-year-old Yunji does not respond well to this. Her mother writes her letters in Korean over years and years. And the letters are actually a huge part of the memoir. And they're reproduced, um, both translation and the original Korean in the book. It's it's really beautifully done. And Yunji, like, she's too, you know, young and not, like, literally mature enough to really grasp what her mother is trying to tell her. And so she, like, years later comes back to these letters and is translating them and starts to sort of unravel the threads of her particularly her mother's line and the women in her family, their experiences in Korea. You know, they uh, were like they witnessed a massacre. They had experiences with the Korean Japanese War. They have they were immigrants. They were, you know, wives and mothers and daughters who were damaged by misogyny and the patriarchy. Like they there are all of these threads of what the women in her family have experienced that sort of come together to create the relationship and impact the relationship that Yoonji has with her mother, which is so complicated and difficult. And it's really her just sort of trying to reckon with those conflicted feelings, that love, that frustration, all of the really hard, difficult, complicated, tangly feelings you can have for your relatives like are in this book. 
And I just think it handles that complexity so incredibly well. And I think a similar way to the way a little life, you know, like gives you all of these different strands of experiences and shows you like what their impact is. That's what this book is doing in memoir form with a mother daughter story instead of a friend story. It's just so good. I think you're going to love it. So again, that is The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Cope. And that is our show. Woohoo! Woo! Thanks to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who cleans up all our flubs and fumbles and is just the best. Thank you all for listening. We super appreciate it. We also appreciate it when you leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other folks to find the show. Thanks to our sponsors for making the show possible. And you can find us on social media in between episodes. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time.